Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we discussed the men who went on the lam in 1969, five of them because of statements and testimony given by Jack Kelly, and two of them because of the murder of William Bennett and the car bombing of attorney John Fitzgerald. That being Stevie Flemmy and Frankie Salemi, based on testimony provided to the feds by Robert Diego. And of the five, Carmelo Merlino, Stephen Ruckus, Phil Cresta, Frank Venditulli, and Louis Minacchio, one remained on the run for nearly a decade. Hence the title, Where in the World is Louis? In my old brain, I think of Where's Waldo, but it's a play on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Well, you're not young enough to be familiar with that series, but I am. Good for you. Well, it was a game show that was created to help American kids learn about world geography. <laughs> I'll stick with FBI reports for that. Thank you. Now, before we get into Louis's time on the lam, let's give a little bit of Louis's bio for our listeners who don't know much about him or his early days. Good idea. Hey, do you think there's a chance that Louis might be listening to us? Wishful thinking, but it would be amazing if we had a chance to interview him. Obviously not about crime. Unlike many of the others, he appears to always have been tight-lipped, but just his view of Providence and the events that took place over the decades would be great. I agree, but I won't be holding my breath. Well, while we're waiting on Louis to contact us, let's talk about his early days. Luigi Giovanni Minacchio, later known as Louis John Babyshanks Minacchio, was born on June 23, 1927, to Nicola Minacchio and Maria Marino in Providence, Rhode Island. Louis had an older brother named Andrew, who was six years his senior, and a younger brother named Anthony, who was 11 years his junior. His father was born in Italy, never became a citizen, and was later threatened with deportation. That's because in the early 1920s, Nicola was arrested for breaking and entering at night and larceny. He was eventually sentenced to six years in prison. But nearly 32 years later, the arrest would come back to haunt him. In 1954, the Attorney General of Rhode Island tried to get Nicola deported, citing the newly enacted McCarran-Walter Act, but the governor swooped in to save the day and pardon Nicola. The state Senate approved the pardon a week later. Louis's father passed away on May 24, 1964. As for Louis's record, the first arrest we could find was from March 8, 1945, for breaking and entering in larceny. It appears he wasn't convicted of those charges. He enlisted in the Army on January 10, 1946, and of all things, he became an MP. The irony, but I bet he was good at it. Well, he was honorably discharged on March 14, 1947. On January 17, 1948, Louis was arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon. Again, it appears nothing ever came of the charges. Then four years later, in December of 1952, Louis was pinched along with Terence Biafori and Max and Sarah for a $4,000 payroll robbery at a jewelry plant that landed him in jail 10 minutes after the heist. They were charged with robbery, assault, and possession of a firearm. In April of the following year, Louis was given a five-year suspended sentence. Throughout the rest of the 50s, Louis managed to stay out of the hands of law enforcement, but his lucky streak came to an end in February of 61 when he was arrested in the Federal Hill neighborhood of Providence on the grounds of being a suspicious person. That was a common occurrence back in those days. The law could pick you up at will. Colonel Stone of the Rhode Island State Police admitted that he and his men used the practice frequently to shake up Raymond Patriarca's guys. In my mind, if you keep getting pinched and cut loose just as a form of harassment, you're never going to talk. You know, it's just to rattle you. I agree, but Louis was arrested at least two more times in the 60s for being a suspicious person, once in 63 and again in 65. 
On the same day in June of 65 that he was scooped up, he was also hit with IRS charges along with the rest of the boys, including Rudy Schiara and Henry Tamilio. Those charges stemmed from undeclared gambling proceeds. Louis received a one-year suspended sentence and a $500 fine. On the fifth anniversary of the Plymouth Mail robbery, August 14, 1967, Rudy Schiara, Pro Lerner, and Louis Minacchio were arrested in Attleboro while, while idling in front of the Holiday Inn Hotel. Pro was in the driver's seat when he was approached by Patrolman Paquin and Convey at around 10.15 in the evening. It just dawned on me that they were always sitting in cars having meetings. After a call was placed to the Providence PD that revealed Louis' lengthy record, two other cruises arrived and the boys were asked to step out of the vehicle, advised of their rights, and placed under arrest. All three refused to provide any information other than their names. The following day, they were arraigned, but the charges were soon dropped. Well, where else would you meet? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I think it's place. I just There's think no about years. it. They're always all packed in a car. Like even dad later on. I'm thinking of dad like later on in life too. He was just always packed in a car with half a dozen people. It's insane. Fast forward to April 2nd, 1968 at Robert Almonte's Social Club while Louis and the boys were lying in wait for Joe Schiavone. A few months prior, in November of 67, Joe and Louis were involved in a shootout on Atwell's Ave that resulted in Louis's neck being grazed by a bullet and briefly landed him in the hospital, hence why they were all gunning for Schiavone. Around 3 in the morning, the Providence PD received a phone call from someone at Robert Almonte's Club on 153 Atwell's Ave, informing them that Louis, Rudy Schiara, Johnny Rossi, Dickie Calais, and the others were armed and waiting at Almonte's for Joe Schiavone to walk by so they could kill him. The cops raided Almonte's Club 30 minutes later and found the weapons as well as gambling paraphernalia. Louis and the other men were arrested and charged with illegal possession of weapons, but all the charges were eventually dropped. This is another instance where they would have been better off staying in jail because a little over two weeks later, on April 20th, Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay were killed. Had Almonte, Menacchio, Schiara, and Rossi still been in the cooler, events would have been drastically different. How many times did we say that throughout season one? Seriously. On August 12th, the warrants were issued and the arrest began. To hear more about that, listen to the first episode of this season, Jack's Justice Part 1. Three days later, Rudy Schiara was scooped up early in the morning. Later that day, Jimmy Vespia was interviewed by Special Agent Kenneth Hansen. Vespia said that Louis was in charge since Raymond went away, quote, on vacation, unquote. In other words, since he started serving his sentence at the federal pen in Atlanta. He also told the feds that Schiara and Louis were very close. Special Agent Hansen also met with James Duffy, the owner of Joe's Bar on Atwell's Ave. Duffy claimed that Louie and Rudy weren't the types to be involved in murder. Call me naive, but in this case, I actually agree. Well, you're not going to get an argument from me. Rudy had been pinched for every murder that had taken place in Providence in the 60s, so why break with tradition? <laughs> Well, with Rudy locked up, the manhunt for Louie was the priority. On August 19, 1969, Special Agent Dennis Condon approached Jerry Angelo at 2.40 in the morning on the corner of Snow Hill and Prince Street in the North End. Whenever I hear Snow Hill, I think of the 1950s Brinks heist. I can't help myself. I doubt you're the only one that that happens to. I'm also trying to picture Denny Condon lurking on Prince Street at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> Another scene that would be great in a movie. Some shadowy dark alley. Jerry told him that he had nothing to say to him. Denny snapped back that Jerry didn't have to say anything because he wanted to tell Jerry something. 
Miraculously, Jerry agreed to listen for once. Condon lectured Jerry about harboring a fugitive, specifically Louie. Jerry quipped, you're talking like a lawyer. If you want to talk like a lawyer, you can speak with my lawyers. Well, Jerry's so-called lawyer, Al Horrigan, who Laura and I both believe was not an actual attorney, but was one of Condon's CIs, was sitting in the office, but did not participate in the conversation. We'll get more into Horrigan in future episodes. Jerry had blocked the entrance to the building with his body, most likely because he didn't want to be interviewed on the press. <laughs> the conversation continued in the doorway. Mr. Condon, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know why you're telling me this. Thank you very much. And off Condon went. On August 20th, Special, Agents, Special Agent Martin Conley and Rhode Island State Police Lieutenant Vincent O'Connell approached Louis's older brother, Andrew, in the vicinity of Smith's Restaurant in Providence. He was informed of Louis's fugitive status and the penalties for harboring a fugitive. Andrew told him that if his brother turned up, he would let them know. But that wasn't enough. Andrew was questioned again the following day at his job at BNM Casting in Providence. He told the authorities that he could not believe his brother was capable of the things he was accused of. A couple of days later, on August 22nd, Barbara Rotunda was interviewed. She said that to the best of her knowledge, Louis had left for Europe prior to August 12th and was possibly with a girlfriend who lived in New York City. An unspecified informant claimed that Louis was friends with Bobby Calderoni, a watch shop owner, and Nikki Bianco. For our listeners who want to hear more about Nikki's early days, his relationship with Raymond Patriarca, and his involvement with the gallo profaci War, they should listen to New York State of Mind Part 2. Jack Kelly told the feds that Louis was close to Carlo Gambino and Butchie Maselli. Or as the feds listed him, Marcella, they decided that Bianco and Calderoni should also be located and interviewed. Marcella makes me think of Marcella Wine or Veal Marcella, but the misspelling just reminds me of La Cosa Nostra instead of Cosa Nostra. You think they would have found an Italian-speaking agent by then? No comment. The spelling mistakes, it's brutal. <laughs> The interviews continued, and they even had the nerve to interview Henry Tamilio's brother. On August 26, 1969, Carmen Tamilio was interviewed by Special Agent Sean McGuaney. Carmen told him straight out that he knew nothing about the whereabouts of Louis, Frank Vendi, or Rudy Sciarra, who was still being sought at that time. Carmen gave McGuaney both barrels about his brother being railroaded and wrongfully convicted of the murder of Teddy Deegan. He went on to tell him that Joe Barboza was the murderer and that his brother never okayed the hit and was on death row for no reason. Who didn't know that? That's all I heard for 30 years of my life. Anyhow, later that day, Special Agent McQueenie interviewed Mario Charlie Ruggiero. He told him the same thing, that he had no idea where the Lamisters might be. He told McQueenie that he was close friends with Louis's brother, Andrew, who had complained to him that the feds had a helicopter hovering over his house all hours of the day. And to make matters worse, agents were wandering around Andrew's neighborhood, asking everyone in sight about the missing duo. Ruggiero added at the end that the word on the hill was that the men in charge of the gambling and loan shop charking operations were concerned that the heat would ruin their businesses. On September 4th, 1969, Special Agent McWheeney submitted a 209 report detailing Louis's past travel and passports. His first passport was issued on August 8th, 1962 for a six-month trip to Italy and France. On March 16th, 1965, it was renewed for a three-week three trip to Italy, France, Germany, 
Switzerland, and Norway. A third passport was issued on July 8, 1968, with an, with an expiration date of July 7, 1973, for the purpose of traveling to Italy, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, so Louis could once again go skiing. He was supposed to fly TWA on July 12, 1968. He was described as 5 feet 9 inches tall, 155 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. His profession was listed as a real estate agent. The feds added a few de details to Louis's description, including that he was to be considered armed and dangerous, carrying a small caliber pistol in a shoulder holster. My favorite line in that report read, Menacchio is an avid skier and has traveled extensively within and out of the USA. Lucky Louis and his skiing adventures. Oh, yeah. On September 4th, Patrick Jr. was interviewed by Special Agent Charles Rapucci. Jr. agreed to travel to Atlanta to talk to his father in person. Raymond was doing time for conspiracy to murder Willie Maffeo. Jr. also told the feds that people were complaining about the heat that Vendi and Menacchio were bringing on the neighborhood. According to the FBI report, Jr. also told the feds that gossip had it that the feds must have a good case, otherwise the two men wouldn't have run. He also said that as his father sent up word to Providence, the two fugitives would surrender. How did that work out? Well, he didn't say when they'd surrender. <laughs> Continuing his search, Special Agent McWeeny contacted Andrew Monacchio's wife, who told him she knew absolutely nothing about Louis's personal life. The following day, McWeeny made it to the Louis's younger brother, Anthony. Oh, the doctor. Uh, yeah, the gynecologist and future abortion clinic owner. He received his degree from the University of Bologna, so of course the authorities thought Louis might be hiding there. Well, just like his sister-in-law, the good doctor had nothing to say. That same day on September 5th, McQueenie interviewed Joe Puppy Dog Mulliconi. Joe was the owner of the County Loan and Savings Association. He told the feds that Louie had a savings account at his bank, which contained $1,600, but he refused to allow the feds to view Louie's bank records. Smart man. He told them no warrant, no poking around. Well, Joe Mulliconi had plenty of experience with feds poking around his bank. Another teaser for later in the season. Joe also informed them that Louie had a mortgage of $4,900 through the bank on a piece of property he owned at 386 Atwell's Ave, the future abortion clinic. Louie owed taxes and insurance on the building, totaling $800, which Joe said he would pay through Louie's account. Beyond that, Joe offered nothing and said he knew nothing about Louie's alleged criminal activities. Later that week, Special Agent William Quinn of the New York field office reported to the Boston SAC that surveillance of Nikki Bianco was fruitless as there was no sign of Louie and Nikki was deemed as, quote, not cooperative, unquote. They even questioned Greg Scarpa about Louie and Frank Vendy, but Scarpa claimed to not recognize photographs of them. The next on the list was Thomas DeLuglio, Louis's childhood friend and attorney. McWeenie interviewed him on September 8th, and the only statement he had to make was, Jack Kelly is a liar. Well, where's the lie? Very funny. A whole month passed before the national and international sightings of Louis began pouring in. Rhode Island State Police Colonel Walter Stone told the feds that one of his informants told him that Louis was spotted in Chicago and that he was enjoying the hospitality of former Providence dweller Max and Sarah. Max was Joe Ayupa's right-hand man in Chicago, but in the 1950s, he was an associate of Louis in Providence. 
Max had been pinched with Louis back in 52, and unlike Louis' suspended sentence, Max was actually sentenced to five years in prison based on his previous stay at Leavenworth. <laughs> a subpoena was obtained to trace all of their calls received and made from Insera's phone, but it was a waste of time. In late September, Special Agent McLean darkened the doorstep of Mario Charlie Ruggiero's business partner, Roger Achille. Not just Charlie's business partner, but more importantly, Louis' godfather. Exactly. Roger and Charlie were partners in the chalet restaurant on Mineral Springs Ave in Providence. Louis had worked for Roger at the restaurant until the shootout with Joe Schiavone in 67 when Roger fired him. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> when the feds asked Roger if Louis could be in Chicago, he said that Louis had a thing for Chicago showgirls. <laughs> Who knew Chicago had showgirls? I thought that was a Vegas thing. Vegas, Chicago, what's 1,700 miles in a few decades? <laughs> Don't be such a stickler for detail. Well, maybe there were Chicago showgirls back in those days, but I think Roger was messing with them. Well, I doubt Roger was the only one pulling the Fed's chain, which brings us to the next sighting, Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Special Agent Charles Rapucci's mystery top echelon informant, BS670CTE, told him on October 2nd, 1969, that Rudy Sciarra's brother Dante was delivering food and messages to Louis on the island. Not just delivering food. Special Agent Rapucci's informant told him that Dante was going to the vineyard every single day. What? Louis didn't have a fridge or something? <laughs> you know the informants were sending the feds on these wild goose chases left and right. Exactly. According to the informant, Dante, who lived in Johnston, Rhode Island, was working for a construction company who had a project on the Cape. So Dante would take the ferry over every day. These days, it takes roughly an hour in one direction from, from Hyannis. So that's two hours of travel dock to dock and back. Who knows how long it took back in the 60s, in the fall, no less. Then Dante needed to make it to Louis' supposed hideout every day. I mean, come on. Well, they investigated. They probably had some rookie waiting at the dock to watch for Dante every afternoon. Oh, windy and miserable. Just before the Maffeo Malay murder trial began, the feds announced on December 30th, 1969, that they were considering adding Louis to the top 10 most wanted list. More drama. We won't get into the trial until next week. Nearly two years after the Maffeo Malay murders, Louis was spotted on the ski slopes. The sightings ranged from Vermont to Idaho. The managers of those resorts were interviewed, but the feds came up empty-handed. In May of 1970, Pinky Panarelli suggested to his handler, Special Agent Welby, that Nikki Bianco might be harboring Louis somewhere in New York. That same month, the feds were wandering around Buffalo looking for Louis and Frank Venditoli, as they believed that Frank was working the carnival circuit. Can you see Louis hanging around a carnival? All dapped out, sticking out like a sore thumb. It's almost as bad as being on the cake. Well, those two might not have been at the carnival, but the search was certainly becoming a circus. The following month, one of Condon's informants told him that Louis was clearing out of Brooklyn because he believed the feds were showing people in his neighborhood his picture. The feds weren't just in Brooklyn that summer. They were also in Connecticut trying to find Max and Sarah's son, Joseph, who was stationed at the sub base there. Multiple attempts were made to contact him throughout July. They even questioned his commanding officer about Louis. 
They finally caught up with Joseph and Sarah at the end of the month. During the interview, Joseph told the agents that he had lived with his family in Providence until about 1955, when he was roughly 10 years old, until his family moved back to the Chicago area. Max was also the brother-in-law of the Biaforis and the Morellis. For more on their backgrounds, check out our episodes about Federal Hill. Joseph also told the feds that his father, Max, was the previous owner of the home that Louis's mother was currently living in. It's unclear whether Louis or his mother purchased the home, but one would assume it was Louis. Well, Joseph and Sarah was also stationed at the nuclear training facility in Idaho, and Louis was believed to be on the ski slopes there for a few months earlier. So come on, that's a legit connection, right? Talk about a stretch. Well. <laughs> Throughout 1971, the feds focused on the phone calls being placed and received at the Insera home in Chicago. Back in Rhode Island, they focused their attention on Thomas Curcio, a relative of Romeo, who was one of the men picked up at Almonte's social club after the tip was called in that they were going to kill Joe Schiavone. In January 1972, puppy dog Molicone was interviewed again. He had recently returned from Italy, so of course the feds had to question him. His answers were very cagey. He said he didn't see Louis there, only that he didn't travel there to contact Louis. Well, I'd say with almost certainly the puppy dog Molicone had seen Louis in Italy. <laughs> oh, I agree. It was shortly after Molicone's interview that the feds found themselves on another wild goose chase, this time to Venezuela and Aruba. In April of 72, the search for Louis took the feds south of the border. Tommy DeLuglio and Frank Caprio were wandering around both places, and the FBI felt certain they had to be meeting Louis. <laughs> oh, please. They were probably working on their tans. Well, their description of Caprio specifically mentioned Caprio's dark suntan. <laughs> See, I told you so. Well, I don't think the authorities really believe Louis was in Caracas because they were back in Chicago poking around Max and Sarah's house again shortly thereafter. Poor Max. In June, the rumor was that Louis would turn himself into the New York City cops in light of Raymond Patriarca's recent acquittal, but that too never happened. The following month, Louis's mother and his brother, Anthony, were interviewed. She said she was very worried but wouldn't encourage him to turn himself in if he contacted her. Joe Patriarca was interviewed by Special Agents Harmon and Peterson on September 4th, 1972. The authorities met him in front of a barber shop on Dean Street in Providence. He had nothing to tell them about Louis's whereabouts, but he did go into great detail about his diabetes, showed them his hypodermic <laughs> needle for his insulin, and told them where he dined for lunch every day at noon and how the chef cooked a no-sugar, no-salt meal for him. I can't. The agents must have loved writing that 209. But there was light at the end of the tunnel. Finally, after three and a half years, Louis was found in Chamonix, France, using the the name Richard Tamelia. Skiing, just like everyone <laughs> said. <laughs> He'd also supposedly been writing postcards to his tailor in Paris about his travel plans. Amazing. <laughs> but the Fed's hopes and dreams of hauling Louis in were soon dashed. The French police informed them that the only way they would extradite Louis to the U.S. was if they received an official request from the district attorney in charge of prosecuting the case. But when the feds went to now Attorney General Richard Israel with their good news, he was not interested in getting Louis back. His reasoning was that it was too expensive. Israel was also focused on the appeals in the Matteo Malay double homicide and was very concerned that the state would lose their case. 
But most importantly, the attorney general had come to the conclusion that Jack Kelly was not a reliable witness. Tell me which one of the Fed's star witness was even remotely reliable. And I'm putting dad at the top of the list. Like he used to tell me when I'd say something about something shady that he did. You lie like a rug. Well, guess what? They were all liars. No question. Barboza, Teresa, the Flemies, Jack and Richie, to name a few. The feds and Israel were of the opinion that Louis was making trips in and out of the U.S. on a phony passport, and the report to D.C. recommended waiting until Louis returned to the U.S. to nab him. According to the legal attaché in Paris, even if the French deported Louis for being in their country illegally on a phony passport, they would only deport him to either a neighboring country or another country of Louis's choice, but not his country of origin. So that was another dead end. And in the meantime, the French police had lost Louis. The following February, informant BS1663 reported to his FBI handler that DeLuglio and Moliconi had recently made a business trip to Italy. Presumably, the business was Louis. A year and a half later, Dennis Condon reported that Frank Imbruglia told him that Louis was living in New York City. We forgot to add Imbruglia to the list of liars. Oh, yeah. Al Horrigan also told Dennis Condon that Louis was back in New York City. He added that Louis was in regular contact with Frank Vendy. He claimed that Louis was dressing like a hippie with long hair and wearing jeans. I highly doubt that that man was sending postcards to his Parisian tailor would be caught dead as a hippie. There was no way he was dressing that way, but it's a nice fantasy and one more wild goose chase. Horrigan also brought up another recent incident in Providence, the explosion at Louis, Louis' brother Andrew's house, but he didn't have anything helpful to offer. The explosion had, recent, had conveniently taken place when nobody was home, but the house was totally destroyed. The force of the blast had broken windows and cracked walls in neighbors' homes. Debris from the explosion had also started fires on roofs up to half a mile away. The local authorities suggested that organized crime was involved, so of course the feds had an excuse to open an ITAR case and elbow their way in. The Providence Journal reported that Andrew was running Louis' gambling interests since Louis was on the lam. Like many other events in New England, that crime was never solved either. The following spring, the feds were still harassing the Minocchio family, including Louis' ill mother. Louis' other brother, Anthony, told the feds flat out that he had no intention of cooperating with them. Throughout 1977, the feds continued to contact Louis' family and acquaintances in Rhode Island with absolutely no results. You know that cliche about insanity? The feds were living up to it. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But the reality is that it worked for them. In the end, they got the convictions they wanted. In July 1979, Louis Minocchio surrendered to the authorities in Rhode Island. He pleaded innocent to charges of being an accessory to murder and conspiracy to murder. He was released on $50,000 bail. An initial court hearing was set for the following month. I don't understand. The man had been on the lam for 10 years. Wasn't he a flight risk? I mean, obviously he didn't flee, but still. Well, I mean, he had fled for 10 years, and obviously the authorities knew that their case was junk. And that's where we're going to leave you today. Next week, we'll be taking you through the Maffeo Malay murder trial. We'll find ourselves back at the gaslight, being gaslit by Jack Kelly and the feds one more time, but not for the last time. We'll be back at the gaslight when we cover Louis' trial later in the season. Thanks for the new YouTube subscribers, but we still need a few more. 
Hope you join us next week. Bye. Bye.